This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for November 23, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Ahead on our podcast, part two of an hour-long conversation with three nationally known presidential historians offering some context on the Trump presidency. Historian and presidential biographer Douglas Brinkley of Rice University, Civil War and Reconstruction-era historian Edna Green Medford of Howard University, and Richard Norton Smith, the biographer of Presidents Washington and Hoover, and now a book on President Gerald Ford. They were interviewed by C-SPAN's Brian Lamb as part of a forthcoming C-SPAN book on presidential leadership. It will be published by Public Affairs in the spring of next year. This has often been said that uh, this presidency is a presidency by Twitter. In history, what have other presidents used similar to Twitter at the time that another kind of a technology or another way of uh, communicating existed? Well, you've got Lincoln, who's actually using uh, the telegraph to communicate with his generals and to stay in touch with what's happening, uh, you know, in the field. Uh, you've got McKinley, who's using using silent film. You know, his inauguration was the first to be filmed. Uh, you've got uh, someone like FDR with his fireside chats. Uh, Eisenhower is using uh, TV ads in his campaign, uh, all of those kinds of things. And, of course, Obama with his really uh, technological savvy in, in terms of the use of social media. So this isn't, as I said, this is not new uh, in terms of use of technology, but it, it may be a tad uh, more than what other uh, presidents have uh, embraced. Richard? Yeah, in some ways, the great-great-grandfather of the tweet is Lincoln, um, who, who, who would write public letters, um, clearly in an effort to influence public opinion. Um, and, and, and remember, Lincoln himself uh, evolved as, as the war evolved. And at the outset of the war, he um, tended to, 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 to look upon it as a, as a as a, a battle over states' rights and constitutional interpretation, and to his uh, everlasting credit, um, he came to to realize that it could only be justified, and and all of the blood spilled and all of the pain inflicted, um, and the wrenching uh, changes to to the society could only be justified as a war about human rights and 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 specifically the eradication of, of slavery. And, and that evolution is traced not only in formal addresses, like Gettysburg, most notably, but um, in this series of public letters that he would write to supporters, to newspaper editors, um, and, and others, um, knowing that that was, you know, we, we were just becoming a nation of newspaper readers. And, and so that was the mass media of the mid-19th century, and, and no one, I think, has ever used it more skillfully um, or more memorably than Lincoln. Doug, how did uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, communicate with the public? Boy, he was tremendous at it. Uh, well, he gave great speeches. I mean, he would tour the country, and, uh, you know, you get 50,000 people showing up in medium-sized cities to hear 
a great oration, but he also cultivated the cartoonist of that era, most famously when Clifford Berryman uh, went with him on a bear hunt in Mississippi and drew the famous uh, cartoon, which led to the teddy bear becoming the symbol for Theodore Roosevelt. But he, um, he would um, constantly bring cartoonists to the White House. He'd befriend them because he knew there was nothing more devastating than ridicule of your opponent. And we see Donald Trump doing that with Twitter. I think in the history of kind of presidents, how they communicate to people, Jack Kennedy was very interesting with his press conferences because I've read stories where suddenly people, reporters said, gosh, you just can't listen to the press conference. Now we've got to look at facial language and body language and how he says it. And, um, and then Jimmy Carter tried to use talk radio. Um, people forget that he actually operated out of the White House a, a call-in to people, and it, it got bad reviews, and he eventually didn't do it. So I think the real question is, are you good at it? TR was great at manipulating cartoonists. FDR was amazing at radio. Jack Kennedy was a master at the press conference. And Donald Trump politically has used Twitter to his great advantage. However, there may be legal ramifications for some of his tweets as the Mueller investigation moves forward. Um, and it's also kind of killed his his ability to grow his box office above 42% because there are a lot of centrist Americans, what they used to call Brooks Brother Republicans or not Rockefeller Republicans or Gerald Ford Republicans that don't like his tweets. And, um, and it, it may be his undoing. I would not call him a master of the art form at this point in time. Let's for a moment, um, and I, I know you're not in the political consultant business, but let, let's assume that he's going to run again. And based on history, what would somebody like him have to do in order to get a majority of the vote this next time around? What you got any? Can you give us any examples of somebody that was in a similar position and then had to change the way they went uh, to the public to get reelected? Traditionally, um, the idea is you, you look upon your first term as an opportunity not only to solidify the base that elected you, but to broaden your appeal, um, to stake out a claim to the center and then build out from that, whether to the right or the left. Woodrow Wilson was elected in a three-way race in 1912. Um, clearly, but uh, it was a fluke uh, in the sense that the Republican Party had been split asunder by this intense uh, personal uh, grudge match between Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. Um, At the same time, Wilson very skillfully exploited fears that America might become involved in World War I, um, and in doing so, for example, uh, uh, poached on um, a lot of Republican, ordinarily Republican voters in the Midwest and the West, West Farm Belt, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so it's um, um, there's an element of opportunism involved um, and, and the willingness, as I say, to, um, to to reach out to people who may not have voted for you the first time but who who could be persuaded the second time. I know you're not asking this, but there seems to be very little based upon the first two years 
of the Trump presidency that would suggest that is a strategy being considered. Edna, we talked earlier about the Electoral College and how five presidents in history won the Electoral College but didn't win the popular vote. In the case of uh, John Quincy Adams, Benjamin Harrison, and Rutherford B. Hayes, they did not get it reelected. In the case of Hayes, I think he didn't want to have a second term. Mm-hmm. George W. Bush is the only one that's gotten a second term. Anything there that we can learn uh, from? Yeah, you know, I, I think that with Bush, the real difference was that September 11th occurred. And what that did was it gave him the opportunity to look his best in front of the American people. There were instances when he didn't look so great, but in that instance he was. And I think as a consequence of how he responded to that crisis, that won enough people over that he was able to to get that second bite at the apple. Had that not occurred, I'm not so sure that that would have happened. So I don't think it's so much about what he did as an individual to get him a second term, but the circumstances that made it possible for him to respond in a way that was seen as presidential to a larger number of people. Doug. Yeah, well, uh, it's what I said a little bit earlier, Brian, that it's tough Um, The public is suspicious of you when you don't win the popular vote. And as you pointed out, they've all lost in American history, with one exception, George W. Bush. And Edna pointed out why he became the 9-11 president. But he barely got reelected, George W. Bush, all for the want of Ohio. If if Kerry would have performed a little better or had picked John Glenn instead of John Edwards as his running mate, he would have uh, been a one-termer, George W. Bush. Because you just start off as you want to get a honeymoon, you want to get momentum. And the best way to do it, I think, is the way Jack Kennedy did in 60. He barely beat Nixon, but he came in and suddenly had an 80% approval rating in his first year because he tried to do big American things like going to the moon, um, try to um, preach a bipartisanship, try to like move um, to the center like you saw Bill Clinton do when he did triangulation. Donald Trump is not any of the, going to be doing any of these things. He sees himself as a revolutionary force of nature who's trying to um, destroy the enemy on a battlefield. Uh, he's not able to try to, um, you know, win. He, if, if he got reelected, it would be by the very slimmest of margins because uh, he's not building his box office. Reagan used to say, get 50%. Try to win over 50% of the American people. It's hard for me to see with people's ideas of Trump kind of cemented at this point, how he moves from 42 to 50 short of America being at war. What does his relationship with Congress look like compared to other presidencies? Well, he has the great virtue of being um, a president that has um, Senate and Congress, and uh, he's been able to get some big things done. I mean, if by November Trump could say, I got two Supreme Court justices passed, conservative ones that are going to uh, change the face of um, American jurisprudence for the next 50 years, that means he got along with Congress pretty well to get both of those two done. If you reverse that question and how is he on the sense of working across the aisle in a bipartisan fashion, he flunks. Um, So he's kind of really an all or nothing kind of figure. And the danger for Trump is if in those midterm elections, the Democrats, I don't think they need a blue wave. They just need to win Congress. 
they're going to have Trump very tied up with subpoenaing him, um, with um, investigations, with trying to move forward towards impeachment. So this midterm for Donald Trump is life or death because the opposition loathes him so dearly. Edna. Even with even with the advantage of having uh, his party control both houses of Congress, he still seems to be more likely to go it alone when he can. So you know we saw that that, that real drive for executive action rather than working closely with congressional leaders. Uh, and besides that, his his party, the party leaders are not always sure what he wants. So they are reluctant, for instance, to reach across the aisle and to make any kind of deals with the Democrats because he might change his mind. Richard, let me ask you about staff. Uh, the staffs are huge now compared to they were in the early days, as you know. Uh, how does his experience in the first two years compare with other presidencies? Um, I think this is one area where there there really is no comparison. You, you, you certainly you could go back to the first term of Andrew Jackson and see turmoil in the cabinet um, over this you know remember the Peggy Eaton affair uh, that sort of thing. But but in the modern era, um, you, you always have I mean State Department and uh, and Pentagon. There's you know there are there are built-in institutional rivalries, if you will. Uh, and that's not always a bad thing. But in terms of chaos as a governing strategy, um, deliberately, persistently pursued, um, it, it's, it, it's turning on the head every conventional theory uh, of, of how to run a White House, of how to run an administration. And... Um, I, I think, like so much about the Trump experiment, it may work in the short run, but it may also very well contain the seeds of, a, of its own destruction. Um, and that's, again, one reason why um, whatever happens in the midterm elections is going to be critical to determining um, the rest of this presidency and how it's perceived uh, in history. But I if you ever had a president uh, attacking members of his own cabinet uh, day after day after day, uh, exploiting those divisions, um, you know, contributing to the to the polarization that already exists. It's um, I, I can't think of it. You know, again, Andrew Johnson um, had a secretary of war and Edwin Stanton that he desperately wanted to remove. Uh, and and that in fact factored into the uh, impeachment of the president, but you know that was one instance. This is this is a governing philosophy, if you want to dignify it as such. Edna, and I think as such, it's unprecedented. And what about the Andrew Jackson uh, scandal around Peggy mm -hmm. Eaton and mm -hmm. the, the fact that uh, over the years too, oh. some presidents have fired their cabinet and put a whole new cabinet in. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Jackson was really a consummate politician, and he certainly knew how to get rid of people, even if it hurt other innocent folk. And so with the Peggy Eden affair, uh, he's using that unfortunate incident as a way of getting rid of a cabinet that he could not trust, 
uh, that he couldn't rely on to always support him when he needed them to. And so although he was very fond uh, of uh, Peggy Eden and her husband, uh, he allowed them to be the scapegoats for his desire to get rid of, of these folk that were not towing the line for him. And so in that way, I think, you know, we, we, we talk about who uh, Trump compares with most closely, and we know that he is very fond of Andrew Jackson. In a lot of ways, he is like Andrew Jackson. He, he is able to uh, use folk who are around him to, to, to the, his, his advantage in terms of what he's trying to get done. Uh, and so, and he also surrounds himself uh, with family members, people that he can rely on. So I think this is a president who really does feel that he has to have a certain um, kind of person in place close to him that he can trust. And that is very similar to what Andrew Jackson uh, did as well. Doug? Um, well, I agree with that. And Andrew Jackson would be the, I think, the most apt comparison. Um, but with the problem of the modern presidency for Donald Trump, there is no White House that has as many leaks as the Trump White House. And it's part of this hurly burly, reckless style of Donald Trump. It doesn't um, engender loyalty. It might f- scare some people to staying loyal. But in the end, it is a bureaucracy of the White House and the amount of leaks that are coming out that are damaging to him. Or it's ca- they're cascading leaks out of this administration, and so it belies the idea that that's um, that bullying is a um, is a governable strategy for a president because the end people just leak to the press. Let's uh, let's la- have this be the last question. And uh, over the years, a couple hundred years of presidency, discuss how presidents dealt with scandal. Or investigation, I mean, the obvious recent one would be the Nixon-Watergate story or the Reagan-Iran-Contra, but over the years, there have been lots and lots of investigations, and how does what's happening during the Trump years fit uh, into that story? Well, you know, there's a, a professor of history at Yale University named Joanne Freeman who has a book about to come out on the history of duels in, in, the, in Congress and just how people, if you're honor- was you know bruised? You would go in um, either go cane each other or have a um, a pistol duel. We often think it was just an isolated incident with Charles Sumner, but she documents many such incidents in politics of of um, of defending one's honor. Um, I think that we're in a problem now where um, that honor has left American politics. Um, that we, you know, you have a Congress with an 18% approval rating. We have a president with historic lows. The American public are sick of Washington, D.C. and American politics. It's kind of a pox on both sides. There's a clamor for an independent, a third party wave, but you need a billion dollars to run a third party. And um, so it's it's not a very pleasant climate now. It's kind of a neo-civil war going on with a lot of dysfunction and a lot of name calling. Everybody, Donald Trump's been called every name in the book and he calls everybody else a name, but with the media cycle, it sticks more. It's not one insult a year, it's an insult today going on now. And the net effect is a lot of people are kind of turned off from um, Democrats and Republicans. Edna? Yeah, but incivility has always been there in American politics. I think we sometimes look back 
uh, to the past, and we think, oh, we are in a different place now. We're so, so very uncivil to each other, and that never happened before. And in reality, it has always been with us. It's a part of American politics. But I think that when scandals occurred uh, in the past, in many instances, these administrations simply ignored what was being said or tried to ride it out. And I think what's happening now is there's a real pushback uh, because so much is at stake. A presidency is at stake. And so, you know, knowing that, uh, is there any other way to, to approach this? But um, so the, the incivility is going to continue. I, I don't see that changing at, at any time. And, and it's spilled out now into the American public. So it's not just a political thing. It's right there in our communities on a daily basis. But, but, and I do think with Barack Obama, he was a relatively uh, scandal-free president. And I think that we can have a higher standard in office of, of presidents that aren't in regular scandals. Unfortunately, Bill Clinton and Donald Trump have dominated our lifetime with their scandals. But you can do good governance, but you have to lead a life that's transparent, that's open, uh, and you can't live on a sense of paranoia or hiding of past deeds. You've got to be an open book. Oh, sure you can. I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. But the incivility will always be there because especially now that we are so divided. I mean, the political tribalism is there to stay, I believe, for the foreseeable future at least. So as long as we believe that there is, there's us and then there's the other, we're going to have these problems. Richard, you have the last word. Well, <laughs> I would say what, what sets Trump apart from all of his, virtually all of his predecessors, um, I, first of all, I don't think you can exaggerate the uh, reality TV element. Uh, to Trump, this is all a performance, um, and every episode is a is a, is a is a new is a new cycle. It isn't that uh, he has a long term vision uh, that he wants to implement. Um, he wants to win the day. Um, but beyond that, and inseparable from that, is the fact that I think, unlike virtually every president, this is someone who is defined by his enemies, who defines himself by his enemies, and who um, seems curiously deflated if he doesn't have a foil to play off of. And um, that Again, like I think so much of this presidency may work in the short term, um, and, and none of us is a prophet, but it's hard to, to believe that it's a formula for a successful governance. Richard Norton-Smith, Edna Green-Medford, Douglas Brinkley, thank you three very much for filling in the blanks. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Take Bye-bye. care, everyone. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the second part of our conversation with presidential historians Douglas Brinkley, Edna Medford, and Richard Norton-Smith, the three taking part in an hour-long conversation with C-SPAN's Brian Lamb, offering some historical context onto the Trump presidency. It's all part of C-SPAN's forthcoming book, The Presidents, Noted Historians on the Lives and Leadership of America's Best and Worst Chief Executives. It will be published by Public Affairs in April of next year. And this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast.